Good morning once again. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here, and I've been part of this North Sub family for almost seven years now, and the ingredients that make for a thriving church family may not be all that different from what makes from for a thriving nuclear family. Like when most of us, when we look back on the families we grew up in, it's clear that in hindsight, no matter how fondly we remember the vacations and the trips and the big moments, maybe even more formative to our family's health were the thousands of ordinary meals we shared that we don't remember at all. The thousands of ordinary prayers we prayed that have been lost to history, just the everyday work of being a family. And so as we gather today on the day of our annual family meeting here at North Sub, uh, we aren't bashful about saying we hope you'll stay around after service today and join us. It's unlikely to be anything earth-shattering. You probably won't remember a word of it 10 years from now. Yet, the work we do together to say goodbyes to departing members, to welcome new members, to raise up new leaders, to set the church's priorities by means of a budget, to revise our constitution and bylaws for optimum church health. This is sort of ordinary stuff that forms us, shapes us, that knits us together. So I hope you can stay around today. Let's pray as we open the word. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. For many of us, talking about a jealous God associates him with people we've known. The mom in the neighborhood who gets upset whenever you invite a different family over for a play date. The girlfriend who won't have you ha let you have a night out with the boys. The teammate who sulks after a win because you scored the game-winning goal and he didn't. So when we read God saying, as he does multiple times in Scripture, I'm a jealous God. We're like, God, the PR here is less than ideal. Like, is jealous really the way you want us to think about you? But what if God's jealousy isn't the insecure, petty kind, but another kind of jealousy altogether? And what if the sort of jealousy that characterizes God is also supposed to characterize us? Would you turn with me to Exodus 34? Exodus chapter 34. Grab a Bible, Bible app. Take a look there with us. We've done a lot of work over these last few months sharpening the focus on our picture of God. That's the goal of this series. Let's stop thinking of God how we'd like him to be and start thinking of God the way he describes himself in Scripture. So over the past 15 plus weeks now, we've seen that God isn't necessarily a God of love as we imagine love, but he is a God of love as the Bible defines love. He's not necessarily a God of justice as our society always defines justice, but he is a God of justice as the Bible defines justice, etc. We're going to see something similar today. God isn't a jealous God in the way we might imagine jealousy, but he is a jealous God as the Bible describes his jealousy. So we're going to reflect on a passage today in which God double identifies as jealous. And then we're going to consider if there's a sort of jealousy that's appropriate for us to have, because it proceeds from God's own jealousy. So, God's jealousy and then godly jealousy. One and then the other. First, God's jealousy. 
read along with me here and note how God's jealousy is different from petty human jealousy. I'm in Exodus 34, verses 10 to 14. And the Lord responded, look, I am making a covenant. I will perform wonders in the presence of all your people that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work. For what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Observe what I command you today. I'm going to drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land you're going to enter. Otherwise, they will become a snare among you. Instead, you must tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and chop down their Asherah poles. Because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you're never to bow down to another god. He is a jealous God. So think about this contrast. Our jealousy is situation-based. Right? Jealousy has a way of washing over us in response to something that someone else does. But you notice God's jealousy, on the other hand, is not like that. He just is a jealous God. Like that's his constant state of being. Look again at Verse 14, because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, never to bow down to another God, he is a jealous God. There's a good, uh, and in fact, it goes further than that. Look at some other translations of verse 14. We saw the CSB, but look at the ESV. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Same thing in the NIV. Don't worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. There's a good argument to be made that the best way to translate this verse is to be saying that jealousy is so fundamental to who the Lord is that he even claims that his name is Jealous, with a capital J. So jealousy, we're talking about jealousy as a settled character trait. That doesn't sound like the insecure, oversensitive individual whose feelings get hurt at the slightest offense. And this is a different sort of jealousy, one that runs deeper and remains constant no matter the circumstances. So if the Lord is always carrying around jealousy, what is this jealousy? I think Wayne Grudem isn't far off here in his definition, and he defines it this way, that jealousy, God's jealousy is that he continually seeks to protect his own honor. He continually seeks to protect his own honor. That's what it means for God to be jealous, right? That he continually seeks to protect his own honor. Now, I get it. I really do. Someone here is surely thinking, as I might have been thinking at some point in my life, hey, preacher, you're not making your God sound any better here. Like, it was already weird that you were talking about a jealous God. Then you added that he's always living in a constant state of jealousy. And now you give us the cherry on top that his jealousy consists of protecting his own honor. This isn't exactly endearing us to your God. To be honest, he sounds kind of self-absorbed. And this, this would be cringy self-absorption if, if he were one of us. Right? For any of us to live in a constant state of commitment to protecting our own honor would be sinful and self-centered. But think about why that is. It's only pathetic for us 
to live for our own honor because it's misplaced. None of us are deserving of constant, unbridled honor. But if there's one who does deserve constant, unbridled honor, if there's one so great and so kind and so loving and so good and so just and so merciful that it would be wrong to show him less than constant, unbridled honor, then shouldn't he live in a state of constant commitment to that honor? See, if he let his own commitment to his own honor slip, he would actually be slipping into sin by his complicity in dishonoring the only one truly deserving of honor. See that? So, so to put it differently, for the same reason that it's sin for us not to uphold God at the center of the universe and live for his name to be honored above all names, it would be sin for God not to uphold himself at the center of the universe and to live for his name to be honored above all names. Both would be sin because in both cases, the one who deserves to be in first place gets knocked down from first place, which is close to what the root of all sin fundamentally is. And look, in a, in a, in a wild paradox in all this, God's commitment to his own self-honor turns out to be for our good. Did you know that? And that's because if you and I honor something else above God, like if we take the honor that God deserves and we put something else up in that place, we put money there, or power, or sex, or if we live for ourselves, or for that matter, any, any of that, then we miss out on life to the full. We don't get the joy, the fulfillment that we were designed for in that case because our design is such that we maximally flourish when we are singularly oriented toward honoring God. And because it works that way, that means that as God is working for his own honor, he is simultaneously working for that which would maximally enrich our lives. Makes sense? We're kind of deep here, I, get, I know. On final analysis, it's like one commentator said, the problem with idols, and I'm paraphrasing, but the problem with idols isn't that they make God feel bad. The problem with idols is that they can't save. God hates idols because they keep from salvation those he wants to see gain eternal life. By the way, that's why so many of the jealousy passages in scripture are wrapped up in a context in which God is presenting himself as bridegroom to his people who are the bride. If a bridegroom isn't jealous of his wife as she flirts with other lovers, can he really claim to love her? No, his jealousy for our full affection is a direct reflection of his great love for us. See, Make no mistake. God is for God, first and foremost. But in the beauty of his design, his working for his own glory and his working for our good turn out not to be mutually exclusive, but, but mutually reinforcing. So no, God, he's not content just to exist as a being who is theoretically worthy of honor. He wants to be honored. He doesn't want to just be great. He wants to be recognized as great. And as we saw in our passage, that's part of the reason he does such awe-inspiring things. Remember verse 10? Look, I'm making a covenant. Why? I'll perform wonders in the presence of people. Why? All the people you live among will see the Lord's work. It'll be awe-inspiring. In other words, even though Israel is going to be the beneficiaries of his awe-inspiring works, he's not just thinking about Israel while he's performing these wonders. He's motivated by what will be seen 
and how people in the other nations around Israel will respond to what he does. And Matthew Barrett points out a clear scriptural example of this that I had never thought of before. You remember the, the exodus from Egypt that preceded our passage for today by several chapters? Uh, Do you ever wonder why God would have gone through all the trouble of those ten plagues, one by one, sending hail and flies and gnats and frogs? You ever think about that? Like, it's, it's not like the king of Egypt was such a formidable adversary, a powerful opponent, that God needed ten tries to achieve victory. Right, please, like, God, he could have snapped his fingers and rescued his people from Egypt in a second if he wanted to. But the ten-step spectacle he pulls off instead is so dramatic. It's so over-the-top miraculous. Why? God tells Moses why, right before he sends the eighth plague. This is fascinating. Check it out. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. This is Exodus 10. For I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so they may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. Why? So that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them, and you'll know that I'm the Lord. See, God's not like, I hope this plague works because I don't know how many more tricks I have in my bag. Pharaoh is no opponent of concern to God. No, God's already looking two, three generations down the road and he's saying, I want to do this in such an over-the-top way that even the people not yet born will hear this story from their grandparents and know that I'm deserving of honor as the one with matchless power. And that's exactly what happens, right? As the Israelites enter the promised land, the nations around hear the stories about what God did in the Exodus a generation ago, and they know there's no way our puny gods can protect us from somebody that great, and so they shake in fear as Israel approaches. So God acts today in such a way that he'll be honored tomorrow. He's in a constant and fundamental state of protecting his own honor. That's his jealousy. Now we go on to godly jealousy. Godly jealousy. What's in this for us? How does this apply to us? What sort of jealousy should we have? As you notice in the passage, we'd be off base if we imagined God like, hey, I just want you to know that I'm going to be up here working for my own honor. No need for you guys to worry about that, though. I'm just making you aware. No, he actually does call his people to act in a way that reflects that we share in his jealousy. Not that we feel about ourselves the way God feels about himself, but that we feel about God the way that God feels about God. For example, look at verses 12 and 13. Be careful not to make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land that you're going to enter, otherwise it will become a snare among you. Instead, what do you do? Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, chop down their Asherah poles. To act this decisively, instead of as opposed to making treaties with other nations, or as opposed to some sort of live and let live approach, this requires a person to have zeal for the Lord's name to be exalted above all other names, right? Just as the Lord himself is zealous for his name to be exalted above all other names. And there are several biblical examples of people displaying this sort of godly jealousy and being commended by God for it. But the one I want to highlight this morning in a five-minute aside right now is that of Phineas, okay? So Phineas. His story takes place a little bit after our passage today. Phineas is a high-ranking priest. He's the grandson of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. This is during a time 
when the nation has been ignoring the instruction we just saw to deal severely with the gods of the nations in the land that they are coming into. Uh, they've gotten comfortable intermixing with their neighbors and worshiping their neighbors' gods alongside the Lord. Some of this worship of other gods is even accompanied by sexual evil. And so take a look what happens. It is a bit graphic at the end. Look at Numbers 25, verses 1 to 13 uh, with me. While Israel was staying in the acacia grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his burning anger may turn away from Israel. He's a jealous God. He won't tolerate his people worshiping other gods. So Moses told Israel's judges, kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. Right then, an Israelite man came bringing a Midianite woman to his relatives in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Do you picture that scene? The whole community is weeping because they've just been in this grievous sin. People are losing their lives because of this sin. Everybody's distraught that they would have turned from God and that there's such terrible uh, consequences. And right in the middle, right in the midst of that moment, there's this Israelite guy who's like, no big deal. I'm going to just blatantly flaunt this. And I'm going to do exactly the thing that we're in trouble for in the first place. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw this, he got up from the assembly, took a spear in his hand, followed the Israelite man into the tent, and drove it through both the Israelite man and the woman through her belly. Then the plague on the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord spoke to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the Israelites because he was zealous among them with my zeal, so that I did not destroy the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore declare, I grant him my covenant of peace. It will be a covenant of perpetual priesthood for him and his future descendants because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So Phineas, here's a guy so motivated by God's honor, so driven by wanting to see God's name respected above all other names, that when he sees a fellow Israelite acting as though God is some kind of joke, He's filled with rage. And again, it's not that Phineas has been personally wronged in some way, as is so often the case when we're filled with rage. Right? The issue here is that God has been treated as though God is not worthy of respect and obedience. And so Phineas puts an end to it, violently so. Now, from the chairs where we sit this morning, we might be like, okay, Phineas, love where your heart is at. But maybe your execution, a little bit extreme. But if it was too extreme, why is he so unequivocally praised? Look what God says about Phineas. And Phineas gets even more love later in the Bible. 500 years later, look at how Psalm 106 talks about it. They aligned themselves with Baal and Peor, ate sacrifices, offered to lifeless gods. They angered the Lord through deeds. The plague broke out against them. But Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. It was credited to him as righteousness throughout all generations to come. In other words, it certainly seems like our guy Phineas is supposed to be an example to us. 
of what our zeal for the Lord should look like, like how jealous we should be for God's name to be exalted above all names. Phineas, in the Numbers 25 incident anyway, lives out what our first passage commanded about tearing down the altars, smashing the sacred pillars, chopping down the Asherah poles. He's not making any treaties. He's tearing it down. He's not leaving any place for idols in the camp of Israel. Okay. But what about today? Right? Like, what does this look like today? Maybe you're like me. Like, okay, God, I'm with you. That jealousy is a communicable attribute, meaning like we should be jealous for your name and honor. I'm there with you. But I promise you, God, that some of my friends in the neighborhood have the same attitude toward you that got the spear thrust through the dude's back in Numbers 25. Are you suggesting that I bring a knife to the next block party? Like, what are you actually calling me to? And the first and maybe most critical distinction to make here is that these dramatic scriptural expressions of jealousy take place within the family of faith and in the place that bears God's name. Within the family of faith, in the place that bears God's name. That's such an important distinction because, yes, our, for example, our local, state, and national governments can be idolatrous. And, yes, we're right to be grieved by that. No, God will not be mocked. And so in his timing, his wrath will fall on every nation that didn't acknowledge his supremacy, even secular ones. Still, Phineas, in that story, didn't go over to the Moabite camp and kill all the other Moabites who were engaged in the same sort of sin over there. He dealt with one instance of it, one instance that was particularly egregious because the perpetrator was an Israelite who was part of the covenant community. The command to smash the altars and tear down the idols, that wasn't, hey, go on raids to Turkey and Saudi Arabia and smash their idols. It was in the land where you're residing, the land that will bear my name. In that place, don't let there be any idols in your midst. Tear them down. What are the implications of that distinction? I think it means that for us today, this call to jealousy is to be applied first and foremost within the church. First and foremost within the church. And I know I'm parting ways here with some Christian nationalist teachings, and that's intentionally so. Let me be clear. The growing movement to accumulate political power in hopes that Christians could one day make the Bible the law of the land in America is misguided for many reasons, not least of which is how much idolatry must be tolerated among so-called Christians who are on our side in order to fight the idolatry that we're so worried about there, out there in the world. That's backwards, biblically speaking. We're called first and foremost to identify the idols in our midst and break them down. So its most forceful applications should play out here in the church. Second distinction. Actions that are assigned the death penalty in the Old Testament, in the context of a theocratic nation, the New Testament equivalent of the death penalty is excommunication from church. And that's fitting because excommunication is a death of sorts. Being cut off from church membership and from communion and from Christians treating you as a brother or sister in the faith, that's meant to feel like death. And that death is meant to wake us up to the reality of where life can truly be found. That's why Phineas's willingness even to kill out of jealousy for God's name finds its expression today in our willingness to expel from this community someone who is persistently, flagrantly dishonoring God and giving God's glory to another. 
we must refuse to wink at idolatry in our midst. Yet, to be very clear, and this maybe deserves to be a third distinction on its own, physical violence is very much off limits for us today as an expression of our jealousy for the Lord. We American Christians aren't living in a theocracy. None of us holds the mediatorial position Phineas held, not me, certainly. We're not told to bash the idols of pagans, but to live such good lives among the pagans that they would see our good deeds and glorify God, 1 Peter 2. When Jesus told Peter to put away his sword, in other words, that was a word for us too. So yes, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that while God will judge the world out there, judgment begins now within the family of faith. And so yes, our jealousy for God's honor must work itself out in disciplining one another within this family. But no, that discipline may never take the form of physical violence. The zeal that we're talking about here. It's easy to lose as we age. Here's a current graph of our church demographics, for those who are interested. Preview of the annual report we're going to see today. We're certainly trending toward growth over here, for whatever reasons, and uh, flatter over here. However, uh, we're still not exclusively a young church by any means. There's people in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there are so many really, really great things about this. As many of you who are young have told me, you've related how refreshing it is to be in a church where everybody's not the same age. And some actually have gained the wisdom that's hard won over the decades. That said, one danger when the curve is heavily over here is that we lose the zeal of our youth. And here's what I mean. It's possible for any church, but maybe especially for an older church, to reach a point of complacency where a member of the covenant community, that's our membership roles, could waltz through the camp, so to speak, flaunting God's commands, basically daring God to bring judgment, and we all look the other way. Like I've been in a church where there's a church member who is cheating on his wife over and over again, despite her gracious forgiveness. If such a situation were to happen here, and we became aware of it, there should be a fire that's ignited in our chests that makes us stand up and say to that person, no. I don't care if the person you need to confront is someone in your small group, if it's one of the elders, if it's me. If it's this sort of clear, egregious flaunting of God's authority, your call from the Lord, not just leadership's call from the Lord, your call from the Lord is to stand up and say, stop this. Now, I admit I feel hesitant saying what I just said. Because we're living in an age in which so many people think they're Phineas when they're really Don Quixote. You know what I mean? These folks are on a rampage in their churches, causing chaos by embarking on this righteous quest to purify their congregations from idolatry, when in reality, most of the people they're fighting against are really good, godly people who just happen to differ from them on secondary matters. I go to pastor gatherings, and every time we meet, we hear about somebody whose congregation has somebody just like that, a snake. But the snake is always convinced that they're a Phineas, acting out of jealousy for the Lord's honor. So part of me doesn't want to hold up the example of Phineas. I'm honestly fearful that doing so could 
embolden an unhealthy person to embark on a foolish and divisive crusade. Nevertheless, I don't know, I, I feel convicted, rightly or wrongly, that I'd be doing a disservice if I shrank back from what I see here in the text, namely, a call to remain diligently zealous for the Lord's honor, jealous for him to be praised above all, and ready to act in zeal when his name is brought into disgrace. I hope what you're hearing me say is that what we're after is to be the sort of church where we keep our ability to be zealously jealous for God's name while being able to discern when it's appropriate or inappropriate to take the spear in hand, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. So our big idea today is this. Let's join God in his jealousy by taking decisive action against idolatry in our midst. Let's join God in his jealousy by taking decisive action against idolatry in our midst. That jealousy of God's, it's not petty. It's not insecure. It's a settled commitment to a fundamental orientation toward his own glory and honor. And by answering God's call to adopt that jealousy for himself, Phineas made atonement for his people. Do you notice that atonement language there? He turned back wrath. He made atonement for the Israelites. He saved many lives. And friends, in our own day, the person who's courageous enough to say enough to idolatry in the church may similarly end up saving lives of those who would have otherwise been led astray. Significantly, in the end, Phineas, jealous Phineas, turns out to be a forerunner to Christ, doesn't he? I can't really say it better than Matthew Barrett does, so I've just popped it up here. I'm going to read this slowly so we can chew on it. Knowing the wickedness of God's people. Think about the parallels to Phineas here, Phineas and Christ. Knowing the wickedness of God's people, Jesus runs to the cross and stops the plague. Except this time, the violence that appeases the wrath that should come upon God's people is taken by the one filled with divine jealousy himself, the Son of God in the flesh. For as Phineas thrusts the spear, Jesus allows the spear to be thrust into him. Jesus slays no one with a spear. He tells Peter, put your sword back into its place. Instead, he steps forward and offers up himself to be thrust through. So effective is his atonement that he cries out, it is finished. So satisfying is his payment for sin that the tomb is found empty on the third day. Christ is risen and victorious and all the world will know that jealous is his name. Do you know that Christ did that for you? You were next. You and I were next. The plague was coming for us next. It was a matter of time before we were going to be swept up. And we deserved it. We had given our honor to others besides the one true God. Our lives were ori or oriented around the one great goal of bringing glory to our maker. Yet, at that decisive moment, Jesus stepped in for you and for me and took the spear, so to speak, so that we wouldn't fall under God's wrath. Have you ever accepted his sacrifice on your behalf? Put your trust in him today. For those here who have availed yourselves of the forgiveness his blood has purchased, let's be diligent about refusing to tolerate idolatry here in the church. 
And you know, that starts by drawing the smallest circle of all around ourselves and looking within. Where have I declined to smash the pillar the way I was supposed to? But instead kept false gods on my nightstand, maybe. As kind of a backup plan in case Jesus doesn't turn out to completely fulfill me like I hoped he would. Let me just add, when we destroy those idols, it's often best to do so publicly. Maybe not always, but when we do so publicly, the rest of the church can benefit from seeing what God moved us to do. And so this final takeaway might seem out of left field, but if you've put your trust in Christ and you've answered that call or want to answer that call to smash those idols that you've been worshiping instead of him, why not get baptized? For one thing, Jesus commanded it. So until we do, we're living in a persistent state of disobedience. But beyond that, baptism is actually a picture of what we're talking about here this morning. It's a chance for the Christian not only to say, but to act out in dramatic fashion. Man, I was living for the honor of these other gods until God helped me put those idols to death. They've now been drowned under these waters, and when I came back up, they lost their hold on me. We're going to be baptizing at least one person next week right over there during this service. And someone in our congregation, I'm telling you, someone in our congregation could be so blessed next week by hearing you share your story of how God rescued you from the idols that only bring death, and he freed you to live a new life oriented toward the glory of God. If you're interested in that, even if there's like a sliver of interest, but mostly you're too scared and don't really want to, let me or Pastor Sean know you're thinking about it. We'd love to talk through it with you and help you discern whether next Sunday might be the time for you. It's going to be a sweet time together. Hey, the one whose name is Jealous, he's a jealous God. Let's pray. God, because you're jealous for your own name, for your own honor, for your own glory, you don't leave us in our sin. You don't leave us in our idolatry. And we praise you for that, God, because as we've chased these idols, they've never really brought us the life that we're looking for. And so as you lovingly bring your discipline to bear on our lives, out of your jealousy, <clears throat> we thank you for the times in which you have woken us up, the times in which you have uh, emboldened us to shatter the idols that we've been worshiping and turn to you, the only place where we can find true fulfillment. God, we want to be a people who are jealous for you. We want to be a people who live for your honor and for your glory and who are zealous for it and who don't lose that zeal as we age. Make us increasingly those sort of individuals and make us increasingly that sort of congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.